Hello, welcome to another episode of ESG Out Loud. I am ESG Clarity Deputy Editor Natasha Turner, and as ever, I'm joined by Natalie Kenway today. We're going to chat about the biggest things going on this month, and then Natalie's going to introduce the two amazing interviews we have coming up. So to start, we talk about it all the time, but it's another huge month for regulation, regulation, regulation. And vindicated in a way, because Natalie, you did write at the start of the year, this would be the big year for regulation. So uh, <laughs> it's to see that. I'm not saying that I'm an um, expert on predicting these things. That was sort of an accumulation of um, industry predictions. But yeah, we did that story on 2021 being the year that's a bit of a game changer for regulation and disclosure. And the amount of legislation or talks about legislation consultations that have come out recently, I think is definitely um, supporting that, doing stuff in EU and the UK, the UK a bit more recently as well. We've seen a host of new measures from the European Commission recently, but what are the more recent things in the UK? The UK has been really busy in early June. We have seen, um, so last year, the Chancellor announced that the task force for climate-related financial disclosures would be made mandatory One of the, in the UK, one of the first countries to do so. And push, pushing ahead with that, UK pensions and schemes will need to align with TCFD this summer. Um, so that's great. And it also mentioned um, that there was a consultation in the start of January and the government actually listened to a lot of that feedback and implemented a lot of the changes that were requested. There was really welcome feedback on the um, final statement on that. And, and in that statement, they also said that insurance companies, large private companies and banks will be the next companies to follow that will have to start implementing TCFD. So not yet our part of the sector, but it's definitely coming. They've also set up a group this week, HM Treasury, on tackling greenwashing, um, looking at how the taxonomy can be defined and um, making sure that companies are actually doing what they say they are rather than just using lots of marketing languages to fluff it up and using the words ESGs in our DNA, my bugbear. <laughs> Last month, our magazine was all on biodiversity and a lot of the pieces we featured mentioned the TNFD, uh, which is another thing that's been getting more attention, more progress in the past couple of weeks. Yeah, we had the um, official launch um, last week um, with the co-chairs announced and all the representatives. Uh, Dr. Vian Sharif, a close supporter of ESG Clarity, our interview was in the magazine last month. So um, be sure to check that out. But yeah, it's um, really exciting to see all of these things happening. And we had the TCFD that's being rolled out across the different sectors. And now we've got TNFD. It's going to take some time, but it looks like there's going to be commitments to the framework by 2023. All the acronyms all the time. Great. TCFD, <laughs> also a topic uh, on the agenda for the G7. So we're recording mm -hmm. this the day before the G7 begins. Um, we'll be putting it out the day after it ends. You know, we've been covering what's expected to happen and, uh, you know, we can just, use these as checkbacks, see if uh, what we're talking about now uh, went ahead. Mm. So we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks that all of the G7 countries uh, sort of committed to the mandating of TCFD. There was also some tax 
commitments made. Um, ministers said they were going to introduce a global minimum corporation tax. So that's been really interesting and there's been, um, that's been welcomed, but also criticized by not going far enough by NGOs, as you can expect, everyone's sort of trying to push the agenda forward. Um, and of course, taxation is one of those not often talked ESG topics, but increasingly on people's agendas. And of course, we've also heard a lot about what's going to happen at the summit itself, it's set in Cornwall, it's supposed to be the first net zero carbon conference. So that's really positive. Uh, however, you know, again, there have been criticisms from local groups. The conference centre is very near to quite poor areas in Cornwall. And the disruption caused, you know, has not gone unnoticed. We had a comment in just recently from Peter Backman, who's Managing Director of Sustainable Infrastructure at Gresham House, who said that although funding is increasingly being directed towards innovative smaller businesses that have found solutions for urgent infrastructure challenges, such as broadband connectivity, in Cornwall there are almost 500 village halls that serve their local communities, yet 200 of these still have no internet access. So mm. he was sort of addressing what, some of these issues in the local area. Hopefully some of these things will be addressed and in the appropriate way that as with everything in ESG, considers the S as well as the E. Lastly, worth mentioning today is got it feels like we've seen a lot of World Days coming up recently. There was World Environment Day, we had World Oceans Day. In May, there was a whole bunch of bee and biodiversity related days. I mean, it's, yes. it's a lot. We've done a lot of things for it, but it is a lot. And I, I sort of feel like it's good. There's a lot of awareness raising happening. We've posted some companies that are doing good things for oceans and some funds that are doing good things for oceans but I haven't really seen much action or commitments happening on those days so yes I mean I, I feel I feel like that's a lot of what we've been writing recently is a group of investors or some, uh, someone else that it's always these calls for calls for action calls for action and not much of these are what we're going to do. These are the plans that we have. And we, we've seen one like this like recently as well, the, like head of the G7 summit with the investor group calling on, which is 457 investment firms, a hell of a lot, representing $41 trillion. So like these are the big players. They're calling on government leaders to implement bolder climate policies to get to net zero by 2030 because they're saying that they it's they're, they're they're finding it difficult to meet their own ambitions of investing in these companies due to the disclosures due to them not meeting certain requirements it's, it's that feels a bit like a chicken and egg situation doesn't it we should mention as well june is pride month if you're thinking about uh, what to put out for that let's see some more kind of action being taken i'd say yes well we have some great interviews coming up next and we'll be releasing as always the full versions of these interviews in the coming week but Natalie you've spoken to two very esteemed guests and I'll let you explain what we have coming up. Yes I was delighted to interview Dame Polly Curtis um, she was founding director of the University of Cambridge Institute of Sustainability Leadership um, she's not yet no longer in that role but she's still a sort of key part of that team so she's been talking to lots of financial companies about rewiring the economic framework and um, setting out collaborative tasks for business policy and finance leaders 
She has worked with the Prince of Wales's Business and Sustainability Programme. She's also a director on the board of the Jupiter Green Investment Trust. So we talked about all of her different positions, her experience and overview of the sector and what she has found the most rewarding and the new projects that she has coming up as well as sort of key areas that she would really like to see some ramping up or focusing. So that is was really, really interesting to do. Secondly, I spoke to the head of ESG at uh, Global Index Provider MSCI, Remy Brian, and we talked about the net zero economy a lot. Um, so in the countdown to COP26, we talked about all of these net zero pledges that we're seeing. Um, what and responsible investors should be looking out for when they are um, speaking to companies about their commitments, what kind of targets that they need, whether the red flags, um, and obviously the energy space where it's really challenging and we're seeing a, quite a lot of movement in that sector at the moment with sort of court rulings and shareholder pressure as well. So we had a chat about all of those things. So yeah, two really interesting interviews. And I think, I know I've probably sounded a bit negative about all of this thing, all these calls for action and, um, not not enough, not enough actual action, but we are taking massive steps forward. So it's really pleasing to see. Yeah, brilliant. And just finally, then next month we're going to be launching a new podcast series where we're going to be taking a deeper dive into specific sectors, and we've got a whole new format that we're really excited about. So look out for our new series starting in July. But until then, enjoy the podcast and I'll speak to you soon, Natalie. Speak to you soon. Great to chat. We have so many achievements, Polly. It's so hard to know where to start, but let's go back to the beginning. When did you decide you wanted to pursue a career in sustainability? Well, Natalie, my career goes back so far that um, sustainability wasn't really a term that many people used. Mm. Indeed, nobody was talking about having a career in sustainability when I first started. Um, I um, was really drawn into, I suppose, more into uh, both environment and human rights issues in the 1980s, a period um, of the 1970s, 1980s, when we had seen a whole range of the most appalling, um, both environmental and human rights transgressions. Many of them um, uh, where companies lay right at the very heart. So through Three Mile Island, Bhopal, Chernobyl, Exxon Valdez, Brent Spa, whichever way you look, uh, the corporate sector was uh, in causing deep trouble and frankly in deep trouble. Mm. And I was started out from a, a working at the University um, of Cambridge in the 1980s to help companies to, in fact, originally started out to help them really uh, adopt some of the cutting edge technology from the university, but quickly came to realize that the companies that I was talking to and the senior leaders that I was meeting simply had no mechanisms for dealing with these massive challenges that they faced. And so I found myself increasingly drawn into what later in the early 90s became more commonly known as sustainable development for the Earth Summit and the Brunton Commission, and slowly found myself um, having worked for more nearly a decade in what would be termed now a sustainability career. Uh, and the concept of sustainability made absolutely compelling sense because it talks about a much more rounded, holistic approach to the world where you can't cherry pick environment or social. You have to look at them in an integrated uh, way if you're going to achieve real, real sustainable development. 
Okay, great. Um, that's amazing. Um, and during your career, I, I imagine you've seen, had lots of experiences and moments which has opened your eyes to the real sustainability challenges that the world still faces. I know you've been working in this um, area for some time, but it's it's still a, a big issue for us. What's what's really opened your eyes? What's been one experience or moment that you can pinpoint? Well, I think why I was... Um so receptive to this whole field actually goes back a lot further than that. I grew up in South Africa, one mm -hmm. of the world's beautiful countries where um, human rights were um, traumatized, if I can put it that way, by apartheid. So I was very, very, um, I was, I think I was seeking some way of uh, addressing um, those issues which had become uh, very sort of core to my um, thinking almost without realizing it but um, when I came to Cambridge and started looking at ways of working around on the environment um, I think one of the things which and there wasn't a single moment where which really opened my eyes I suppose is what I'm really saying I had that sort of background and then you come if you come to Cambridge and you spend time talking to scientists who are not campaigners they're not business leaders, they're not trying to sell you anything. They are looking at data and evidence and what's really going on in the world. And it doesn't matter which of those scientists you talk to, whether they are climate scientists or environmental scientists or indeed technologists, you get an astonishing sense of what is really going on in the world. Some of it, which is apps and it has, you know, we've been aware of this for decades and decades and yet so little has been done in both social and environmental terms. But then again, you meet technologists who are so amazingly upbeat about what it's possible to achieve. So I think the last 31 years, which is how long I've now been at Cambridge, was a constant um, feeling of kind of looking over a precipice, but also looking up a great um, um, mountain where the summit was a great prize. Mm. So it doesn't work. I've, I mean, I've had, pivotal moments where a particular event has made it feel even more raw but this has been 31 years of of building that sense of um uh, what is going on in the world yeah it's extraordinary okay um tell us a bit about the work that you did with the cambridge institute for sustainability leadership what is that trying to achieve so what it has always sought to achieve, but now does so with a brilliant team of nearly 120 people. When I started, there was um, two people in a sort of broom cupboard in the engineering oh, wow. department. You know, we've grown to the most extraordinary organization now, but our role always has been, and certainly is now, to help develop leadership and solutions for a sustainable economy. So challenging and supporting leaders to look at the evidence that we have available to us in abundance mm -hmm. and make decisions based on the latest and the best science and to build business models that create value, not just for shareholders, which is important, but also long-term value for society and the environment. So we have executive education, graduate education, we do research, we, I say we, I'm still involved in the Institute, but I no longer lead it, but we, there are uh, amazing groups of um, business and policy groups which are bringing organizations together to develop solutions to some of the most difficult problems that you can't solve on your, on your own. Mm -hmm. 
And that institute now has around 16, 17,000 people in the network all over the world um, who understand now better the need for change and are genuinely inspired to find solutions. That, yeah, that's that's amazing. I mean, how have you found? Um, sorry, I'm, I'm I'm going off 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 script here, so I'm just trying to think of how to phrase this. But <laughs> um, okay, great. How how have you found the sort of reception from business leaders? Has has that increased a lot recently? Oh yes. I mean, I think certainly when I look back over thirty years, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I'm amazed at how much progress uh, has been made. You know, in those first 10, 15 years, the biggest battle was to persuade people that there was a problem half the time, or if it was not just that there was a problem, but that it was their problem. Mm. Um, What's changed now, I think, is that it's very hard to deny that there is a problem that we all face and all have a part to play in. And so there has been enormous amount of progress and people are not asking why now, they're asking how. And that is is, uh, really important and encouraging. But the reality is that um, the, the, the situation, what's going on in the world is changing so fast that um, it's very difficult, I think, for many leaders to work out what to do. They can't use comparison of what was in a previous plan or um, a previous budget. That doesn't give them a clear line of sight as to what they have to do now. So because there are so many new threats and challenges in front of them. So I'm optimistic that the corporate sector um, is responding and will respond. The jury's out as to whether they will respond fast enough. And Mm. by corporate sector, I mean business and the the finance sector. Mm. Uh, That is, if if I'm left with any um, deep-seated anxiety, it's whether we, we could we know how to do it, but the question is, will we do it? Yeah, I mean, that, uh, it's great to hear that we are moving on from the why to the how, and that, that's really important. But yeah, now that pace needs to be picked up, doesn't it? Mm. Okay, and in 2015, the Institute launched its Rewiring the Economy Framework, setting out 10 collaborative tasks for business, policy and finance leaders to lay the foundations for a sustainable global economy. Could you tell us a bit more about those and the progress made on them? Yes, I mean, I suppose our starting point was the realization that if uh, we are going to meet the outcomes in the UN Sustainable Development Goals and the ambition of the Paris Agreement, which is, you know, 197 countries have signed up to that, but if we're going Mm. to do it and stay below one and a half degrees of rewarming, we're going to have to almost entirely rethink everything. We're going to have to rethink our energy systems, transform our industrial Mm. systems, rebuild infrastructure, transport, agriculture, food systems, consumer behavior, just whichever way you look. Yeah. And, we, and on top of all of that, we're going to have to remove carbon from the atmosphere <laughs> by reforestation, restoring soil, whatever we're going to do. So the task is mammoth. Uh, but the reality is that, which in effect does mean rewiring our economy. And the what lies behind our thinking on this is that the three chief actors in the economy that can do and drive that. Of course, we have consumers and of course we have um, other parts of society, but three chief actors are business, government and finance. And they have very good reason, sound, compelling 
reason, but they also have, well, many people would argue, a moral responsibility for driving that change. Mm. And it is certainly in their enlightened self-interest to do so. And we came to the conclusion, having done a huge consultation with many of the companies and the financial institutions in our organization, that it is possible to identify the structural and the cultural changes in the economy that would enable us to drive up the positive impacts um, that we're seeing out there and um, drive down the negative impacts. And so we took those UN 17 development goals mm -hmm. and we condensed them down into six themes, three for, three for environment, climate stability, resource security and healthy ecosystems, and three social themes, basic needs, decent work and human well-being. And then we worked with the companies to um, work out not who would do which in isolation, because they're all things which have to be done in a collaborative spirit, but who would take the lead? So, for example, government takes the lead on measuring the right things and setting the right targets and getting the incentives right and driving innovation, whereas the financial institutions' primary role is is to invest capital to make sure that capital acts for the long term mm. we price capital according to the true cost of business activities and of course importantly essentially that we innovate financial structures to better serve those outcomes and then of course the companies have their own whole range of things that they need to do aligning their purpose and their strategy and their business models setting their targets measuring and being transparent embedding sustainability so we've come up with these 10 tasks um, and use them as a framework to help companies set their own plans. Mm -hmm. So we're not telling them what to do or measuring them against it. There are many other things we do that does help and guide them as to what to do and how to do it. But this framework is simply that. It's a framework to say, it's not that difficult. Mm -hmm. We can't be so overwhelmed by the enormity of the task that you can't start somewhere. So this has been a really valuable framework for us. And we have, have another framework, which is called a rewiring leadership to say what kind of leadership do you need to take you into that uh, rewired economy yeah i mean I, when when you started answering that question i did think god it, it really is such an enormous task you can see why businesses maybe feel overwhelmed but also like you said it's, it's not something we can ignore we just need businesses to take that action now yeah, i mean organizations have traditionally had to learn how to function effectively in enormously complex systems mm. and just because this is new and it's kind of has so many externalities uh it is no it is not beyond the wit of the you know we, these three actors recruit some of the best and the brightest talent into their employment they can sort it they can get their heads around it and they are just not fast enough at the moment yeah I think yeah it's better to be prepared and going into it that way rather than having to react in a crisis I think if anything the past year has taught us that hasn't it yeah although I have to say we are already in a crisis we yeah. are facing an existential threat when you look at some of the things that are going on in the in the uh, not just in climate change but in and around nature we are mm. we are really at the tipping point of of whether we're going to we will survive, but what we will be left with remains to be seen. How would you like to see the investment management community step up in terms of its commitment towards sustainability? 
Well, I suppose um, one of the things to say, first of all, is that I am, I am really encouraged that the speed with which the finance sector and the investment community is now moving. Okay, great. In many ways, it's moving faster than um, many of the um, uh, real economy, if you like, uh, companies. And that's a bit unfair, but broadly speaking, and it's not un- at all surprising, they're looking for to manage risk and seize opportunities. So mm-hmm. things are moving. And I've just been looking at a really interesting um Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative, which I know Jupiter uh, signed up to, which is aiming to get to net zero by 2050 or sooner. And there are lots and lots of um, initiatives out there, which I think are starting to show just how seriously and quickly the sector can move. But we know that the it's it's really quite hard uh, with the present disclosure of fund performances for uh, investors to understand and compare how their funds align with the Paris Agreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots, I mean, this it's really uh, the, the way in which, uh, and all the attempts at the moment are very sort of patchy and non-standardized. Mm-hmm. And what we really need are simple, practical, reliable, outcome-based portfolio metrics. And this is something which the Institute at Cambridge, the team, the um, sustainable finance team at Cambridge are working on with a whole raft of major investment investment companies. In fact, with an organisation called one of their platforms called the Investment Leaders Group, where they're trying to develop robust methodologies in order for companies to be able to account for the extent to which their impact uh, is delivering outcomes, not ambition. Mm. A lot of the time, we hear about you know. Um, we're creating jobs, but the question is, is this decent work? And we're, you know, we're taking carbon out of the economy, but how do you measure that? So things like, I mean, there's a very interesting thing they're developing at the moment, a temperature score methodology, where they're trying to, where they're basing it on the underpinning science and methods of emissions projection and the distribution of carbon budgets to come up with a, um, a decision-making framework. So I'm really interested to see just how much uh, that the investment community are now working more and more collaboratively with some of the cutting edge uh, um, academic thinking to develop things which are robust, evidence-based, science-based and long-term. Hey, thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely fantastic talking to you. Uh, not at all. It's been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Natalie. Now, I'm speaking to Remy Brion, Head of ESG at Global global index provider MSCI. We're going to have a chat about net zero, what it really means and how investors can understand what their portfolio holdings are doing in order to meet these targets. So Remy, for those that don't know, can you please just set the scene for us? There have been lots of companies announcing net zero pledges, um, governments as well, but why why is a net zero economy and all of these commitments so important? Yeah, so clearly we, we have a, a major existential threat that could affect the planet, which is you no know, climate change. And in order to manage uh, a reasonable increase in temperature, which would be 1.5 degree or two, we need to transform our economy to move to an economy which has uh, much less emission. And, and that is is obviously a major, major change. And that's why it's so important both for people and the planet, but also for investors to look at. Yeah, exactly. And 
as we count down to COP26, um, as I mentioned before, COP, lot more, lots of more companies are making these net zero pledges. What should responsible investors be asking these companies about their commitments? What should they, what's the key questions that need to be asked? Yeah, so first, um, it's good that companies are making the, those pledges. You know, it's still not the case that every company is um, uh, having a public sort of uh, strategy on climate and in particular a commitment to reduce emissions. So, so that's the positive. Uh, what we see, however, is that the, um, you know, the diversity and the quality of those commitments are, are you know, diversity is, is very big, very high, uh, and the commitment sometimes can be high, sometimes can be quite low. And to just to give you uh, an example, you know, a few examples, uh, which affects the targets, but also affects the disclosure of, um, you know, of emissions. You, you have company making uh, commitments, but for example, they would uh, take out, you know, their Asian operation, right? Or there would be an automobile manufacturer and don't uh, take into account their truck fleet. So, so this, you know, is clearly um, you know, misleading if, if you want. Uh, and, and that's why uh, it's very important to go beyond the sort of headline uh, element mm. and really look into the details of, of this commitment. So, so the scope uh, of the commitments, the length, uh, if you want, of the mm. commitment, in particular, uh, how quickly uh, the emission would go down in the short term, because, you know, it's obviously much easier to make a, a commitment to 2050 and do nothing for, you know, a decade, as opposed to uh, reducing the emission, you know, every year on a systematic basis. So that's another example of, um, you know, the, the type of analysis or question that uh, investors should ask. Uh, when um, when looking at these um, you know at these targets okay and and the, should they should they be looking for interim targets some of these targets can be quite long term can't they so obviously we don't want to get to 2030 2040 and sort of think oh where where have we got to what sort of interim targets should we be looking for so clearly having uh, uh, targets that sort of roll every five years, for example, would be uh, reasonable. But then it's, it's also a question of reporting regularly on progress, you mm. know, to uh, investors, or if you if you're a company to report on progress, because when you also look at the track record of company in reducing the emission, uh, some are fairly effective, uh, but you also have quite a number of companies that you know fail in meeting their previous objectives. So, so the track record, if you want, is is also a, a good um, you know good indication of of uh, the future trend. Mm. What we've also sort of noticed, if if you want, is that um, you you have the notion of absolute emission, and then you have the notion of uh, emission intensity, which is essentially how much emission per unit or of production or per unit of revenues. Um, what matters is to reduce uh, overall the absolute emission. That is what is going to help uh, deal with climate change. But uh, you have a lot of, of commitments or targets that are expressed in terms of intensity. And so you can be in a configuration where your intensity go down 
but your overall emission for one company are still going up because you're growing production, you know, in general. Mm -hmm. So that's another angle that, you know, is important to, uh, to look at so that you don't end up having a, a false element, you know, of comfort if, if you want, uh, when in reality you still have, you know, emission going up, which is you mm. know, uh, obviously not what you would want to deal with climate change. <laughs> Yeah, so regular reporting, and it sounds like transparency is key as well. Being, being honest and upfront of where 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 the, where the company is at. We've also covered on ESG clarity the um, big announcements around oil with the sort of around with the shareholder pressure, the court rulings. Do you have any comments around that? And like, I mean, it was described as a, as a milestone moment for that that sector. Is that something that you agree with? Yeah, no, definitely what we've seen, uh, if you want, in, in particular, clearly with uh, the uh, uh, with the Exxon and to some extent Chevron, you know, um, example is that uh, shareholders are now, you know, exercising, you know, a real pressure uh, on these companies and, um, and that's what you would want, right? So, so there is a limit to what I would say polite engagement with companies. Mm -hmm. uh, we know from our experience that uh, you know you need to start with that, and and for a lot of companies it works. You know, if people are reasonable and and try to go in the right direction, but it doesn't work with uh, the the real laggards uh, that you know are fighting tooth and nail on on this topic. Mm -hmm. But we've seen it more generally when we rate companies; they are clearly. Uh, companies that are bad actors and and that's a bit sometime uh, the element of you know a bit of a naive view of the world <laughs> that yeah. you know, everyone yeah. is good uh, you know as like in society most people the vast vast majority of people are, are great uh, but they are uh, you know bad actors and and for those bad actors there's no point in being nice you know at one point mm -hmm. in time you you have to uh, uh, you know really get into uh, hard discussion. I think that's uh, to a large extent what happened with with Exxon, yeah. and I think it's a good thing because uh, that's uh, that's what you would expect from you know from shareholders uh, is to uh, put that pressure on companies mm. uh, if there is a real real big problem. So. Yeah, I liked those phrases: polite engagement and bad actors. <laughs> that seems very fitting. Um, if polite engagement doesn't work, then yeah, the big guns have got to come out, haven't they? <laughs> um, so MSCI have developed a new net zero tracker tool. So can you tell me a bit about that and how it works? Yeah, so so it's um, it's uh, still in development. We we said that we would release it, in particular in the context of our effort to provide transparency in the run up to the COP twenty six conference. Uh, what we what we want is to. Uh, provide a, an analytical tool or report that allows everyone, you know, not not just you know, our clients, but everyone to be able to track the progress uh, towards this 1.5, you know, degree goal. And and so for that, uh, you you need to uh, look at you know um, uh, progress across all the sectors, uh, which we're going to do. So looking at the emissions, both again scope one and two, and as well as scope three, which you know in in a sector like the oil and gas industry are really really uh, critical, uh, and we will do that every quarter. So you can actually start looking at at progress because again, what sometimes is not fully understood is that 
we talk a lot about you know emission reduction, but we're still uh, uh, in a, in a phase where the emissions are going up, the intensity maybe going down, but the emissions are still going up. Again, the COVID crisis has sort of uh, disrupted the trend, but but um, but it's not again uh, because uh, we are talking about structural. Uh, change in emission, it was clearly linked to, to the crisis. So we want to be able to provide that transparency on a quarterly basis. We want also to be able to call out uh, the people are doing the best, you know, efforts in terms of reduction or, or real, you know, results, and also call some of the uh, um, companies that are either, as we were discussing a bit earlier, uh, are not providing the necessary transparency and you know, in, in particular the most opaque companies in the emitting sector i think this is again as we are saying something that is is totally unacceptable so we will actually put a spotlight on those uh, companies we we have the benefit if you want of uh, being able to model emissions when the disclosure is not there so we have relatively good models to um, assess the emissions, so we're in a situation where we can highlight uh, the one where our model are pointing out, you know, quite a lot of emission. But when you look at, you know, the disclosure of companies, you know, nothing is is uh, is being communicated on on that front. Well, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for your time, Remy. Well, thank you very much, Natalie. Thank you. Find us on SoundCloud or iTunes by searching for ESG Out Loud. 